All right. Uh, quiz for chapters 11 and 12 will be available from the 1st of November, not through the 4th of November. Not if you looked on D2L last weekend. So it was actually up there. No, nobody told me until this morning. So nobody emailed me and said, hey, there's a quiz that says it's available. But it's now fixed. It will now be available starting on Friday and through the weekend again. So it, it is correct now. Um, the other thing that I just stuck in there is just a reminder that next weekend that the clocks get switched back, which means your observation time changes. So if you've been observing at 1.15, which is when you were supposed to, starting on November 3rd, starting on Sunday, then you want to observe at 12.15 an hour earlier. Because that's when the sun will be back to its same position in the sky. Daylight savings of time just affects our clocks. Doesn't have anything to do with what's going on in the sky. So just as a reminder there, solar observations starting on November 3rd and for the rest of the semester will all be at 12.15. Uh, we have an exam scheduled covering chapters 10 through 12 a week from today. Yay! Yeah. No, okay. Um, Third solar observations, uh, last time I'll take a look at those will be November the 6th. So that'll be Wednesday of next week. Turn those in and then I'll give them back to you on Friday, which is when homework six is due. And we're getting to the end because five homeworks down and three to go. So we're getting, getting, getting to the shorter side of everything. I did bring you copies of homework six this time. If you didn't get it online, I have copies for you here. One, two, three, oops, I can't count. There's four of you there. It's a Monday morning. It's a Monday morning. It's Monday, but the day's almost half over. Goodness. I know, some of you just got up, but for me, the day's half over. Half over. I've been here since about quarter after five. Yeah. My goodness. Yep. My regular schedule. So nice and quiet. Nice and quiet here at five in the morning. Oops. You're going to leave that for Mike. I left you a copy of the homework thing there for you. All right. So, question five is the fun one. It does involve doing a calculation on the, for the luminosity to compare how, the main, how a main sequence and a giant star compare. For that one, I gave you the equation. The luminosity depends on the square of the distance, the, the diameter of the star and the fourth power of the temperature. All you need to do is put in how, this, how much, by how much the star changed. You don't need any actual numbers. It's just a comparison between the two stars. So if the star were to uh, double in temperature, for example, that would be 2 to the fourth power. 2 times 2 times 2 times 2, or 16. So it starred, a star doubling in temperature would become 16 times brighter. If while it doubled in temperature, it became half its size, well, I'm jumping ahead, half its size, not a quarter of its size, 1 half squared, that's a 2, isn't it, would be 1 fourth, and 1 fourth times 16, anybody, before. That's all you're doing, it, not different numbers that I gave you in there, but that's all you're doing is what numbers I gave you in there and compare them. So how did the radius change? You square that. How did the temperature change? You raise that to the fourth power. You multiply the two together to see by how much the luminosity changed. So that's all you need to do for that. The second part of it is a little bit harder, is asking you about the magnitudes. And that's just saying that each magnitude is a factor of two and a half. So how many two and a halves in there are there in the number that you get? 
So if you keep dividing it by two and a half, divide it by two and a half, divide it by two and a half until you get down to one essentially, you're done. Just how many magnitudes. This is a rough estimate of how many magnitudes. Again, don't let it drive you crazy on that one, but it just gives you a good comparison of how the luminosity changes when you take a star that's going to get a third the temperature, but a hundred times bigger. You know, where is, which, which one is going to end up becoming more dominant? And you should find out that that star is a lot brighter, that's a red giant star, it's going to be a lot brighter than it was when it was in the giant phase than it was in the main sequence phase. So, just to show you that one, that's a little bit about what you're doing for number, number five there. And then, so that's homework six, and then the iTunes quiz will be available uh, two weeks from today. Uh, the, third, the third of the four iTunes quizzes. Questions, questions? You want a picture up there today, huh? Black hole? No? Okay. You gotta do something when I forget to push the button to turn on the screen. Come on. It's a picture of black hole. Nothing to see. No questions. No questions. All right. Well, as our, if I put the other button so that it actually pushes the computer there. Come on. Where's our beautiful comet? There it is. This is the comet of 1680. Don't know how many of you are, were around to see that one. Okay, nobody? You here? Okay. Comet of 1680 is seen over Rotterdam. Uh, why are we looking at the Comet of 1680? It's a drawing, a painting of the appearance of that comet. And you see how long the tail is, extremely long tail stretching back there. And one of the things is that they're predicting is that Comet Ison, which is past Mars's orbit and on its way streaming into the inner solar system right now, uh, reaching its closest approach about, let's see, today is what, the 26th? 28th? 28th. Boy, I'm, I lost a couple days somewhere. 28th. Kids wouldn't like that if I forgot that when it came to Halloween, right? Uh, 28th, about one, about one month from today, it's going to reach its closest to the sun. So we're only about a month away. It was at Mars just a few weeks ago. It's going to be in by the sun just in one month, one month from today. Either today or tomorrow. It's the 28th or 29th. It'll actually be the closest to the sun. And they're predicting that it might have some kind of appearance as it comes back around the sun, assuming it survives that. And predictions right now are that it will, that it will be a very nice, nicely visible comet uh, coming up in early December. So chance to see a very, hopefully a very nice comet. And this is just comparing it that this is something similar. The last really great comet that we had like this could have had, so had some very similarities to this, which is Comet uh, Kirch from 1680, which is a little, little while ago. So what, we're talking 400 and 430, 433 years? 433 years ago? A little, little while ago. But that's what Ison might end up looking like. Looking like. Uh, Ison should be visible to the naked eye in a couple weeks, actually. You actually should be able to see it. It's not going to look like as much until it actually passes by the sun and gets much closer to the sun. But it will start being visible. And we've already gotten, begin to get images of it taken with you know, telescopes and the like. It's open. It's open. It was open. <laughs> yeah. So hopefully something we have to look forward to you know, coming up towards the towards the beginning of December other than the final exam. You got the final exam to look forward to and you got a comet to look forward to. So, yay. Yay for both, right? <laughs> Question? Yes, sir. Where is it going to be here? Like when you look up in the sky? It is going to be, when, we when it's first visible, it'll be 
Let's see, I'm thinking if it's coming around, it's going to be over towards the sun. So you're going to look towards the sun, which won't help you much, right, during the day. But you're going to look for it probably right after sunset. And you'll start to see it. As it works, it'll be visible, you know, more and more in the dark. When it first comes around the sun, yeah, it's going to be right by the sun, right? It just passed the sun, so it's going to be very close to it. Over the week or so, week, next week or so after that, it'll slowly move further and further away. And it's actually going to move very far north in the sky. So we're going to have a great view from it, of it from here. So we're really going to be able to see it. It's going to actually, sometime in later December or the beginning of January, it's actually going to pass relatively close to Polaris. So North Celestial Pole, very high in the northern sky. So we should have a very nice view of that coming up in December. Right. Yes? Obviously, we're like amateurs. So mm -hmm. are we going to look up and it's just going to be like a blob like everything else or is it going to have a big you'll see, you'll see, You'll see something similar. This is what people would have seen with their naked eye. You will see that. And will the tail necessarily be this long? I can't tell you until it happens. But we will see. You would not just see just a little blob. You would actually see the blob and the tails will be nice, would be nicely visible as well. So you will get to see that. that hopefully we'll get to see that as well. So we'll keep an eye on it over the next uh, six weeks or so and take a look and see what it's, what it's going to do. But what it's really going to look like is something I can't tell you till after it's already there. So you can make all sorts of predictions, but they're educated guesses, but they're still guesses. So give you some idea, but not, not for sure. I mean, it might pass close enough to the sun. Something might happen. It might end up not being as stable as we think, and it breaks apart, and we see about nothing when it comes out. So, Questions? Other questions? No, it's Monday, right? Uh, pro probably, probably, I would expect they'll start talking about it as soon as it starts becoming more visible. I think you'll start hearing more about it. I think they, w I think they will. Especially if it becomes really, really nice like, like it's supposed to. That is always a risk too, you know. There was all sorts of media hype over Halley's Comet and Halley's Comet last apparition was not a very nice one and we knew it wasn't going to be a very nice one, but it still was, you know, not much to, not much to see. The last couple nice comets like that one were actually were visible, but they were visible in the southern hemisphere. So unless you were down in New Zealand, so uh, I had a guy who does some of my online cl on iTunes classes in New Zealand send me some nice pictures, but can't see it, couldn't see it up here. Alrighty, well let's get finished on finishing up with chapter 12 then. We were looking at talking about the end state of a star like the sun. So we'd run the sun through its whole life already, killed it off. Um, what's going to happen is the sun will end up being a white dwarf star. A white dwarf star has essentially the mass of the sun, so all of its mass is still going to stay there, almost all. The very thin outer layers will be expelled. You know, the outer, you've got the sun like this, you've got a core down here at the center. That's got 90 some percent of the mass. So most of the mass is there. All these outer layers are what's going to be expelled. A very small percentage of the mass, these get pushed off into space. So they expand outward. This part contracts down to the smallest size it can possibly be, almost, till we get to the next chapter. As small as it can possibly be and still have any sort of atoms with it. So what it means is your atoms are protons and electrons orbiting around them. If you push atoms close together, you've got electrons around them, that, and you put those electrons closer together, they start to repel each other. If you get them close enough, 
they can behave almost like a solid and they'll hold the object up from collapsing further. So that core will compress down until the electrons are virtually in contact. And then there's a force that will actually hold that up. And that's what we call a white dwarf star. So that's what our sun will end up becoming. And that's what our, for our sun, it'll just stay like, stay like that forever. This was just some example that I showed you last time looking at some of the white dwarf stars here at this little central portion of a globular cluster. Big cluster of stars here, all formed together many billions of years ago. If we look at this little tiny square in there, we're zooming in with Hubble and able to look at it in much more detail. Okay, and seeing a whole bunch of small bluish stars, very hot stars or white dwarf stars that are present here. So uh, lots of these remnants are present in uh, things like a globular cluster. Alrighty, so now what happens to a white dwarf star? It's got no energy source. So it's just a big, just a big ball. In the case of the sun, it's a big ball of carbon. And that's it. It's not going to change. Nothing else is going to change about it except it's very hot. It's sitting out there in space, which is very cold. It's slowly going to cool off. It's not very big. It's only about the size of the Earth. So that core is now about the size of the Earth. And it's just going to get dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And finally, eventually, you would, never, you would not be able to see it anymore. It would not be emitting any energy as that temperature decreases from 30,000 degrees to 20,000 to 10,000 to 5,000 to 1,000, all of a sudden, to hundreds of degrees. You'd get to the point where it has cooled off completely, eventually, and become what we call a black dwarf star. Same thing, nothing's really changed about it. And for the vast majority of white dwarfs, that's all that's ever going to happen to them. There's a few cases where some more interesting things can happen. Not for our sun, but for other white dwarf stars in very special cases. Yes, in a binary system. And what you can get if they're in a binary system, take a little aside here, this is a, a nova. A nova is a star that all of a sudden gets very bright. So there it is. Boom, there's the star before, there's the star after. And then over the period of a few days, few days, couple months, you know, weeks to months, it goes back down to where it was before. All of a sudden gets bright, gets very bright. So nova for a new, a new star that just appears in the sky because what would normally happen in ancient times is that you wouldn't see this star. This star might be, say, a seventh magnitude star, right? Seventh magnitude below naked eye visibility, so you can't see it. If it brightens by 10,000 times, if brightens by, that's about, that's 10 magnitudes brighter. So you can go from a seventh magnitude star to something that's as bright as Venus in the sky almost. Or you can go from a star that's well off the scale to something that's now visible. So it was a new star appearing in the sky. And these novae are actually, a nova and a supernova are two quite different things. A nova is actually associated with a white dwarf star. And we'll look at that in a little bit. But what happens is all of a sudden it's just there. All of a sudden it brightens up. You know, was it one luminosity went up past 100, past 10,000 times brighter than it was, brightening by, say, about 10 magnitudes. So a star that was on the very edge of vision would all of a sudden become the brightest star in the sky easily, become as bright, brighter, bright or brighter than the planet Venus. 
So it's a flaring in luminosity, not a supernova. A supernova would shoot up well past this. You'd be talking millions of times brighter. So a supernova would shoot way up there. Those we're coming to in a little bit, and we'll talk about those today as well. But a nova set a binary system. What you can do with the white dwarf is it could be in a binary. So it could be two stars there. So you could have your white dwarf star. There it is. You could have, say, a main sequence star or a red giant star close to it. They're orbiting around each other. If they're close enough, the gravity of the white dwarf could be pulling material from the main sequence or the red giant star. That material comes in towards the white dwarf and lands on its surface. Okay? This is all hydrogen, right? Remember the outer layers of the stars are always hydrogen, 90% of them. So 90% of the atoms in the stars. So as that comes in, that lands on the surface of this white dwarf. That doesn't do much. Just a little bit of hydrogen isn't going to do much of anything. Um, temperatures are hot on that white dwarf star, but not hot enough to, to burn that hydrogen. So it just sits there. And it builds up. And it builds up. And the temperatures increase. The pressures increase on it. Eventually, you reach a critical mass of hydrogen on the surface of that white dwarf. And fusion ignites. So you can actually get enough pressure that you can increase the temperature to the point where nuclear fusion begins. Doesn't just take, you know, a very doesn't take a short period of time. It takes many, many years for this to occur. But as the material transfers, you can build it up on the white dwarf. Eventually it'll ignite, burn. You have nuclear reactions going on on the surface of the star for a very short time. It expels those layers out into space. And then we see that as a very bright star for a short period of time. Maybe a couple, maybe a month, maybe two months. So that would cause some of the nova, nova that you're talking about. That's a nova. Yeah, that, that is our, our, our explanation for what a nova is. The supernova is different. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Yes, sir? How long, how long do, uh, or how often does novae uh, exist in our galaxy? Like, how often do they take place? How often? They, very, quite, quite often. I mean, they're, they're a very common. And these are actually, are, can be recurring. So they can occur again and again. You're not damaging the star. You're having nuclear reactions on its surface. But it's a white dwarf star. It's extremely compact, extremely stable and dense. So burns off that surface, expels that out into space, and then sits there. And the mass can transfer again. So it's possible on some of these that you get a nova every 50 years, 100 years, you know, depending on how fast the matter is being transferred. So they can actually recur on a regular, on a regular basis. Now, not regular basis as in, you know, this one's going to go off at 2.15 p.m. on, you know, not that accurate, but it's about 50 years and might take, might take 48 years one time. It got a little bit more. It might take 50, you know, plus or minus years. But you know roughly when they're going to go, go again. That's that one, that one of these stars is due. And that's all it is. It just, how much, just depends on how much mass is being transferred. So that's a nova. And I want to do that because you want to talk about supernovae and you need to really hear about a nova because they're two quite different things. A supernova is something quite different. So here's looking at exactly what happens and looking at some pictures of this. Material falls onto the white dwarf. As soon as it's got enough material, and again, that could take decades. That's not just you know, you know, weeks worth of material or months worth of material. You're talking decades worth of material or even hundreds of years, centuries worth of material that it takes that much material coming from the star to land on the white dwarf. Once it does, 
all of a sudden you reach that critical temperature, you reach 10 million degrees, all of a sudden you can burn that hydrogen into helium. You've started an energy source. There's nothing on the surface of that star to contain it. Right? When it's deep down in the core, you've got all these layers pushing down on top of it. If it happens on the surface, there's nothing to contain it. It just expels it right out into space. Well, here's kind of what you're seeing. There's the white dwarf star at the center, and there's the shell of material that has been pushed off. There it was at one stage, there a little bit later, and a little bit later. So over the course of you know, a couple of years, you can watch that shell expanding out into space. And you can see that happening repeated times. So 50 years, 50 years again, it'll have the same star will erupt. And 50 years after that, and so on, as long as that material is being transferred. So as long as you have transfer of material from one star to another, you can actually do this. Now the sun can never, can never become a nova. It takes a lot of material. You need a lot of material to put on the surface of the sun, a lot of hydrogen, in order for it to ignite nuclear reactions. The sun doesn't have a companion, right? You could take all of the planets and put them all, on the, and put them all together and put that on the surface of the sun. It wouldn't be close to the amount of material you'd need. So the sun will never do anything like this. Our sun will never be a nova. You'd have to have, first of all, a binary system, and you'd have to have them very close together so that matter can go between one and the other. Oh no, with it, we're talking astronomical units. Astronomical unit size. So a star here and a star, you know, a star where the sun is and a star orbiting, you know, an astronomical unit or so away. So that they're, they're, very they're very close. They'd actually be binary stars orbiting around each other. So not light years away. They'd be very, very close together. And again, it is a repeating process. So it will happen again and again. And the upper, upper is showing you again where the star is and where the debris has been expelled out where that new star, where that, when the nova occurred. All right, so we're going to come back to supernovae here in a minute. Um, we got to look at those. The sun isn't going to go supernova. So we want to look at more massive stars now. So here's our sun. This is what we looked at before. So here's one solar mass. And as it used up its fuel, it moved. So its temperature decreased. Its luminosity increased. And it headed up towards the red giant branch until it ignited helium. More massive stars move a little bit, they have a little bit more different, a little bit different pattern moving across this HR diagram. They essentially, in some cases, stay about the same brightness and just move directly across. So they move here, they'll ignite helium, they'll ignite carbon, they'll ignite oxygen. Now the sun will not get to those stages. The sun will get to the stage of burning helium, but it will never get to those other stages. It doesn't have the amount of mass. And you can watch as they kind of zigzag, how they zigzag back and forth. So if you can see the little white pattern there in the middle, but here it goes here, it burns helium, then it turns around and goes back, and then it turns around again and heads up towards the, towards the very large supergiant. So these big stars are ending up way up in that upper right-hand corner as some of the largest supergiant stars that we see. But the paths are, are different. They're all heading towards the red giant phase, but how they get there is a little bit different because different things are going on in the core. With the sun, we burn hydrogen into helium. We were able to get hot enough to burn helium into carbon, but we could never get any hotter than that. We couldn't get temperatures high enough to begin to be burn things like carbon. So smash carbon atoms together. Smash carbon atoms and helium atoms together to create heavier elements. So we're never able to do that in something like the sun.
So what's going to happen? The initial stages are essentially the same. They're going to use up the hydrogen in their core. They're going to do it a lot faster. Okay? Sun takes 10, million, 10 billion years to use up the hydrogen in its core. Some of these very massive stars might take 10 million. 10 billion, 10 million. Very, very fast by comparison. But they're going to leave the main sequence. As soon as the hydrogen fuel is gone, they're going to start to leave the main sequence. The beginning stages are going to look quite the same. So I'm not going through those in any, in any great detail. But we have that core of helium. Around it we have a hydrogen shell where hydrogen is burning, giving us an energy source. Then you'll have a core that's burning helium into carbon surrounded by two shells. And for the more massive stars, this will build up. We'll get more and more shells as, this, as the star evolves and gets hotter and hotter at its core as that temperature continues to increase. So our sun will stop long before this. Our sun will get to carbon and will not get to the stage, will not get to a temperature where carbon can be fused into other elements. So what will be left at the end of the sun's life is a carbon white dwarf made almost all of carbon, uh, about almost the same mass. It'll be a little bit less. Yes, it's going to lose a little bit of its mass, but almost the same mass. And sitting there at the center of the solar system, which of course most of the solar system will have been burned out by then. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, all gone as the sun had burned them up. Uh, you might still have some of the outer planets that would be, able to, would be able to survive. So the beginning stages are the same, but once you get beyond this, then things start to change. And we start to see why we get some of those different, different patterns here. Now, we had the helium flash when we talked about the sun. That was because the center of the sun becomes so dense that it takes a lot of energy to begin to be able to expand it, to make it into what we call a normal, normal gas again. So it's behaving like a gas. So that's the helium flash. That's that really intense amount of energy all being, all being produced at the same time. And using that to expand this core a little bit. So as the sun, as this collapsed and began to burn, it took a lot of energy to begin to expand that core and get it back to behaving like uh, the sun was before. In, very more, in much more massive stars, that doesn't happen. Everything goes a lot faster. For the sun, it takes a long time. That core took a long time to build up. It got very, very compact. These very large stars, things that are two and a half, four times the mass of the sun, it all goes a lot quicker, and that core didn't have time to condense down. So it reaches a high temperature before that core completely uh, condenses, reaches that 100 million degrees, and starts to burn. We saw also when we saw that in the, in the sun, we saw it made a very sharp turn in the HR diagram. Right, it was here, and it started going up, and it zipped right up here, and then jumped back down. Very sharp spot. That was the helium flash. That, very, that big jump. The more massive stars, if you recall when I just showed you those on a, a couple slides ago, don't really change. They kind of just wander back and forth on the HR diagram. So they might have started over here, and they go this way, and then they just kind of wander back and forth as they work their way up towards the red giant phase. They never get anything that's that compact at the center till the very end of their lives. So we start to see some differences that when all the stars formed, they were all the same. Where they ended up on the main sequence depended on their mass, but how they formed was all identical. 
but we start to see differences in their end of their lives. We don't see a helium flash in, we see it in the very low mass stars, we don't see it in the very high mass stars. We see a lot of sharp moves, we see some jumps on the HR diagram where a star goes up there and all of a sudden something happens and now it's jumped back down a little bit. We don't see that in the more massive stars either. The massive stars just kind of move smoothly back and forth across the HR diagram, meaning that their temperature and luminosity is changing much more smoothly than it is with a smaller star. Now, as these stars become unstable, uh, there's a couple images here. You start to see those outer layers are beginning to be uh, pushed off into space. So this is an unstable red giant star. And you have these big blobs of material. Again, when you see those, that makes it look like there's so much material being lost. It's really a very tiny percentage of the star. So just a little bit of the star's outer layers are being expelled out. Most of the star is still down there at the center. But when the star becomes unstable at the end of its life, then it starts to push out its outer layers. And that's what you're seeing here. So some of these, even stars much more massive than the sun, will actually push out material like, will push out material like this. Here's what you're seeing in this one. You're seeing several different sets of expansion. Here it is in very close as it expands outward and outward as these layers begin to expand as it pushes that dusty and dusty material, dusty gaseous material out away from the star. All right, let's see. Oh, good. No. No, this is not, this is, we're not quite to a supernova. This is just pushing out some of those outer layers. This would not be even a nova. This is closer in style to a planetary nebula. You're pushing out those outer layers in a less violent method. So it's more closer to a planetary nebula, but a planetary nebula will not have time to form if it's a much more massive star. Because as these layers go out, we're eventually going to blow up that star, and that's going to tear apart anything that's present there. So we're not quite to the supernova. We're almost there, but that's more, this is closer to a planetary nebula, nebula phase. Now, the fun thing happens when you get the really big stars. You get stars that are eight times the mass of the sun. Now you can actually fuse elements going way beyond carbon. So sun got up to carbon here. Not very far along on the periodic table, right? You start with hydrogen, burn it to helium, take helium, burn it to carbon, and you're done for the sun. What you can do is with others, you can actually burn things to oxygen, burn things to neon. Uh, you can burn to silicon and sulfur and all the other elements working up towards iron. And these stars that are at least 8, 10, 12 times the mass of the sun, recall that they're rare, but they do exist. There are lots of them out there still. Very different fate than what happens on the, on, the earlier on the earlier stars, on the less massive stars. These ones just pretty much travel straight across the HR diagram. So their brightness doesn't change a whole lot. They might get a little bit brighter, but pretty much they go straight across the HR diagram. So their temperature is decreasing. Which color didn't I use? Red. So if we're way up here, you know, it pretty much just goes over there. And yeah, it may have risen up a little bit. Its brightness may have increased a small amount. Its temperature is really what has declined. So its brightness stays about the same. Its temperature has declined greatly. And these are the stars that will eventually end up as supernovae. These are the stars that will actually tear themselves apart at the end of their lives. So the star is just cooling off. 
Its surface is just cooling off. Don't let that confuse you what's going on in the core. The core isn't cooling off. The core is getting you know, more immensely hot than you can begin to imagine. Which is probably pretty saying a lot because we've already talked about temperatures you can't begin to imagine. Right? I can barely imagine 6,000 degrees on the surface of the sun. Forget about the millions of degrees right now. And then hundreds of millions and billions of degrees that it takes to fuse some of these elements together. You know, not something that you can really, really wrap your head around very well. But this is what happened. This is, these are the stars that are eventually going to tear themselves apart. And what happens is you build them up to iron. Iron is element 26, right here in the middle of this big long row. That's, about as, that's as high as a star can go and get any energy. You can get energy by fusing materials together to make, height, make iron. But if you try to fuse iron together, it takes energy takes energy away. So you can fuse iron together. You can smash those two iron atoms together and get them to stick. But you end up with, you end up losing energy in the process. So instead of gaining energy, you start losing it. Yes, sir? All the other elements were made in supernova? All the other elements are made. Everything beyond that has to come from a supernova. So what about the ones we don't know about? Which one? Like what? that there are, we didn't experience the biggest supernova, so therefore there are heavier elements out there that we're just not aware of? As far as we know, beyond 92, there's nothing that's stable. As far as we know. Uh, yeah. As far as we know. And that there, there are conjectures that there is, you know, that there's another island of stability. If you could get out to element, you know, 125, I don't know what the number is, but if you could get out that far, that there's actually a place where you could actually form things that are stable. Most of these elements, when you look at these, and I don't know if it gives me an actual number here. Probably not. No. It doesn't give me a half-life, but it's incredibly tiny. I mean, you're talking you know, microseconds, nanoseconds, billionths of a second. So in, in one second, anything you create is all of it's gone. But yes, there could be other ones out there. Um, there could be other elements. We haven't been able to produce them yet here on Earth. Most of those other ones do not come from supernovae explosions. Up to 92 is everything we know about there. Anything beyond that is things that have been created here on Earth and, you know, under intense experimental conditions. But could there be something else? Yeah, there is a possibility that there are some that would become stable much further out there. So let's look at a supernova a little more here. Or here, let's look at the, through the endpoints first, then we'll come back and look at the supernova. So what this tells you is essentially what's going to happen to a star depending on how massive it is at its start. So our sun is right here in the middle. And if you look at those numbers, that's a big chunk of the stars in the universe, right? Those that are a quarter the mass of the sun to eight times the mass of the sun, they become carbon, oxygen, white dwarf. So they burned carbon. Some of those may have been able to burn a little bit of carbon into oxygen, adding one more helium nucleus. And they're a white dwarf star, and they're done. Nothing else will happen to them unless they're in a binary system. The very smallest stars here, this column, end up as a helium white dwarf. They fuse hydrogen into helium. They never get hot enough to fuse helium into anything else. So they're done. They never undergo a helium flash. They, don't, they can't reach that 100 million degrees needed to fuse helium into carbon. And we mentioned brown dwarfs last time. Those are less than about a tenth the mass of the sun. Never even begin to fuse hydrogen, and they just end up as a big ball of hydrogen, essentially as a giant, very giant planet. 
Now, when we get to the other ones, you get another, again, a white dwarf here. You get a neon oxygen white dwarf. Again, it's just what's left over. You get a little bit more mass. You've actually, instead of stopping at carbon and oxygen, you're going on to the oxygen and starting to fuse things into neon, adding one more helium nucleus to it. So you're starting to get a little more mass, can actually do one more stage of burning. Those that are greater than about 12 times the mass of the sun, you notice there's an asterisk by both of those. Not an exact number that I can tell you. Because when we looked at that one, we saw it pushing out layers. It depends on how much mass it loses. Those very massive stars could lose, you know, could lose solar masses worth of material. Most of their mass is still going to be left there, but they could lose a big chunk of it, and we don't know how much they're going to lose. So that's why those are not exactly numbers. I can't tell you that exactly. You know, if the star starts out as 12.26 solar masses, it's going to become a supernova. Well, it might lose too much. It might, that one might lose a little more mass and might not make it. It really depends on whether it can get down to forming iron in its core. That's the, that's the key. So what happens with the supernova? Here's the curves that we'll see. And you notice the brightnesses are a little bit bigger than what we saw before. Right? We looked at the novae, and it got up you know, 100,000 times the brightness it was. So it brightened from you know, 1 to about 100,000 100, times, about 10 magnitudes. Now you're going up here. Well, there you're starting down here at a million times brighter than the sun. 10 million, 100 million, a billion, you're pushing 10 billion times brighter than the sun. So these are the really extremes. These are the ones that can go from not being visible at all to being by far one of the brightest objects in the sky. So depending on how close one of these was and how bright it was before it started out, you could actually see incredible changes in brightness from a star that was never even visible before. In fact, most of our supernovae that we see in other galaxies, we couldn't see the star before. So we don't know what it was like before. And then all of a sudden, it becomes one of the brightest stars, the brightest star outshining the entire galaxy. Again, the time frames are very short. I never give you very short time frames, right? It's always billions of years or millions of years. Here we're actually talking, you know, 50 days. You know, within a year, they're all gone and faded back down to where they were before. So this is the one time we actually begin to see very, very short time frames. Now, you'll see that there's two types of supernovae. So there actually are two cases where this occurs. There's a type 2 supernova. That's what we've been mentioning already. Type 2 supernova is when you get up to iron in the core. Iron becomes unstable. Okay, you build up this nice core of iron. Right? It should be nice and sturdy. It's a big, strong core of iron, right? But you've got all this weight pushing down on it. You've got all these temperatures. Gravity is trying to pull it down. And material is trying to find some way to hold itself back up. It's got too much mass for those electrons to hold it up. So it keeps heating up more and more and more. And eventually reaches the temperature where you can fuse two of those iron atoms together. Right? Hey, we got great. We got a nuclear fusion going again. Great. Except when you fuse two hydrogen atoms together, as I told you, it, you lose energy. So if you start fusing lots of hydrogen atoms together and losing energy, iron atoms, sorry, iron atoms, thank you. The core cools off. It cools off, it collapses, and heats up, heats up more. It becomes a runaway effect. You're sucking energy out of the core, causing it to implode. So a supernova is really more of an implosion, crashes down and then expands back out, than an, literally an explosion. 
it implodes down, collapses down, just because that iron, it gets hot enough that it fuses it together, but every time it fuses, it sucks energy out of it and causes it to collapse more, and it becomes a runaway explosion. That's what happens in a type 2 supernova. A type 1 is actually much closer related to what we talked about with the novae before. There are some cases where a white dwarf star can blow itself up. Not our sun, we're safe. So our sun isn't going to go through this. But there are cases where actually a, super, where a, where a supernova can come from a type, from a white dwarf star. So here are the two. Unlike a nova, a supernova is a one-time event. You don't get a second chance to become a supernova, you get to do it once. That star is tearing, it's is literally tearing itself apart, especially in a type 2 with the high mass star. That star is pretty much gone. There'll be a little core left over. We'll talk about those as the subject of the next chapter. Uh, possibly a black hole, possibly a what we call a neutron star. So that's one example of what can be there. But there's little or nothing left over. Uh, the two types, very inventively named. We've got type 1 and type 2, so you can remember them easily. Um, type 2 is what we talk about in terms of a massive star. Type 2 is a massive star blowing itself apart. Formed iron in its core, became unstable, boom, it's gone. Tore that whole thing apart, may have left behind a core, may have left something behind at that core. Again, we'll talk about that in the next chapter. Type 1 is what we call a carbon detonation supernova. This is the way, what a white dwarf can become. Um, what happens with a white dwarf is that a white dwarf has a certain limit, ma limiting mass. And that is 1.4 solar masses. If you recall, I told you that a white dwarf star is held up by the electrons, pushing against, pushing against each other within that material, holding it up. Eventually, if you keep putting mass on that, eventually that electron pressure breaks, right? Like you can have a chair sitting there and you can put a weight on it and you can put another weight on it, you know, and you keep stacking these weights on it. Eventually the chair gives, right, and collapses. Well, eventually if you put more and more mass on this white dwarf star, you know, it only has so much pressure to hold up, eventually it's going to give and collapse. That's the limit. 1.4 times the mass of the sun, if you try to put 1.5 solar masses in that white dwarf, the electrons cannot hold it up. And that star all of a sudden begins to collapse and undergoes nuclear fusion all at once throughout the entire star. So if you have nuclear fusion reactions going in the entire star, it essentially, here it does explode. It tears itself apart. So let's see, here we go. Here's the summary of that. I was starting to go over that again, but let's do it again. Um, the only way we can do this, again, is a binary system. So the sun has only one solar mass. The sun traveling through space for billions of years after it becomes a white dwarf is never going to pick up another half a solar mass to do this. So the sun is quite safe. The sun will never become a, a supernova. But if you have it in a binary system, you can transfer material from one star to the other and push it over this limit. So the same process we saw for the nova. Recall in a nova, right? We had a white dwarf star, we had material settling on its surface, and that eventually ignited. If that white dwarf star is right at this limit, if it's right about 1.4 solar masses, and you transfer a little bit of material and you push it over that limit, collapses, starts to collapse down, 
those electrons can no longer hold it up, collapses down, all of a sudden it heats up even more, and hey, great, we hit the temperature to fuse carbon. All of a sudden, throughout the entire star, all at once, and essentially it explodes. You've got, you've got every, all the carbon burning in that star simultaneously, not just at the core, not in the outer layers, but throughout the entire star all at the same time, and that tears the star apart. That leaves nothing behind. So if you have a type 1 supernova, which is this carbon detonation, nothing's left behind. It's all gone. Every, sorry? Um, as soon as it hits that thing like that. It's one of those, one of those few things in astronomy that takes, you know, very small. As it reaches 1.4, might take a few seconds and then boom. Yeah. As soon as it, soon as it does, it immediately collapses. Once it hits that limit, once it hits that limit, boom, it's gone. It's going to be gone. So there's not that it's all, oh, it's going to take it, you know, years or anything else to, to do it. Yeah? So if the sun magically... Okay. Uh, it would probably it would, uh, we wouldn't want to be that close to a supernova explosion. So yeah, it, it would tear everything apart. So if you could have the sun become a white dwarf without destroying the Earth in the first place, and then somehow gain enough mass, it would tear it would tear anything else in that close together it would get torn apart. Probably would be in that kind of explosion. There are some signs that you can actually form planets after a supernova explosion, but I think they're formed. I believe they're formed afterwards, not that you can possibly form a planet again from the material. In fact, the first planets that were detected were detected orbiting the remnant of a supernova explosion. So, question? Yeah. Good. Have we observed a supernova in our galaxy? Have we? Yes, we have. The last one we observed in our galaxy was in 1590-something or other. I'm sorry? Tycho's supernova, or Kepler's supernova, yeah before the telescope. So there has not been a supernova visible in our galaxy, I'll qualify that, since the invention of the telescope. In 1987 there was a supernova explosion in the Large Magellanic Cloud, one of the close satellite galaxies of our own. That was the first one that we really got to study in detail where we had actually images where we could go look, here's what the star was like before and here's what it's like after. But within our galaxy we have not seen one in 500 years now. Yeah, good. If you had something probably within a few hundred light years, of which there aren't many stars of the type that would go supernova, you could probably have some, some intense effects because you'd have a lot of radiation streaming out of them. And the closer you are, the more bigger cross-section of that you're going to get. But most of the ones that are occurring, and there are supernovae occurring in our galaxy. There's lots that have occurred in that 500 years. But depending on where they are, they just might not be visible for us. Even if you're making things millions of times brighter, you might not be able to see them just because there's so much dust in the way. It all gets blocked out. Even that intense brightness can still get blocked out. All right. So here's showing, here's showing the two type as a, sort of a graphic for those who like to see pictures instead of words. Here's kind of what happens for a type 1 supernova in the top. There's your... Uh, star, binary star system forming. You form a white dwarf in a planetary nebula. Not a lot happening, but eventually this smaller star begins to go through its life, becomes a red giant. It expands, meaning that now it's a little bit closer to this white dwarf star and starts to grab enough material. If it gets enough material, 
it'll explode. Now it would probably destroy any planetary system. This, depending on how close the other star is, it may get destroyed, it may be able to survive. This is some of the place where you get some of these rogue stars that are traveling at very high speeds. Essentially they were orbiting around each other. This one blew up. This one heads off in the direction it was heading at that time. All of a sudden, what it's orbiting with is gone. So you can possibly destroy the star. You could damage the star. A little harder to do anything. I mean, a little easier for that to be able to survive. Not explode. I mean, more ripping it apart. So most likely what you'd do is if you do anything to it, you'd rip off some of the outer layers. But the core itself is probably going to be dense enough to withstand that. Wouldn't be a pleasant thing. You wouldn't want to be visiting it, you know, at the time, to be that close to a supernova. But it may be able, it may still be able to survive, and that's when we get some of these very high-velocity stars that are just zipping through the galaxy at much, uh, much different rates than we would normally expect. Let me just finish up with type two here, and then we'll finish the rest of this chapter on Wednesday. Uh, type two supernova again builds up to an iron core, and it's got all these layers. Looks like a great onion. So you've got iron, and you've got sulfur, and you've got silicon, and you have you know, carbon, neon, and oxygen, and carbon, and helium, and hydrogen all around it. Eventually, you get to that iron. That's where it implodes. Start to fuse that iron together, suck all the energy out. It, com- explode, it, com- it implodes, co- bounces down. Everything gets mashed together and bounces back out. And that pushes out the outer layers, exploding the star. So we'll come back on Wednesday and I'll finish up, I'll go through these and then we'll finish up and look at some of the other uh, pictures of stellar evolution that I have for, have for you here. So, Questions? More questions? No? We're ready to go. Alright, I'll see everyone on Wednesday.